0: Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas. With your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton.
1: Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate y'all tuning in to episode 20 today. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend Ryan. Ryan, what's up, buddy? Not much, man. Not much. How's it going, Josh? Doing good, man. Doing good. we got an exciting show today. we got a couple of guests coming on, Sergio and uh, David.
0: Yeah, David Blackman.
1: All right. All right. I'm excited. Well, um, before we jump in, Ryan, I wanted to uh, remind our listeners of some of the jobs we have posted at globalenergymedia.com slash jobs. I checked there were four jobs posted in Houston, three in Austin, and then one in Dallas. The one in Dallas is uh, the one we've mentioned a couple of times, a civil engineer with R-Square Global. Any luck filling that position, Ryan?
0: No, you know, I, we haven't had any luck, and um, we are still looking, and so, yeah, if you want to work in DFW or, as I mentioned before, we have an office in uh, right outside of Orange Beach, Alabama, which is really where the position needs to be filled, so you can go down to the beach. Yeah, man. Uh, be I like, mean, be yeah. like Josh Shelton.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, uh Brian, we we got a couple of a couple of articles that came out this week, kind of uh, all revolving around this this issue. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into the one in the Houston Chronicle. Uh, the title of the article is "Permian Drillers Have Hedged Nearly Two Thirds of Oil Output." It's interesting uh, interesting that this is going on so early. Um, it's it's kind of a creating a, a strange uh, scenario that's playing out in the Eagle Ford and. Uh, and in the Permian,
0: yeah. And so, you know, here's the deal, Josh. We we've talked um, a lot on the show about. Uh, companies that have competing, uh, not uh, uh, differing interest, they're not the same interest, and so um, you know what's good for company A is not good for company B, and then we also we also say, well, you know, when you look at OPEC and all this other stuff, it's the same there, it's just a larger scale, and so here's what we're going to have is that you have companies, big companies like Pioneer, who have hedged out through the end of the year uh, at $50 a barrel, so they're locked in for whatever percentage of their reserves that they have for $50 a barrel through the end of the year, which means that no matter how low oil goes. They're gonna they're gonna pump like it's fifty dollar oil for whatever percentage of, of their assets that they have hedged out. And so if you're a producer, um, for you in this climate where you're going, oh my goodness gracious, I'm not sure what the, what the market's gonna do, how stable it's gonna be. It's, it's it's a pretty good deal because now you say, okay, well if it does drop down to thirty, and I've got X percentage of my my assets that are hedged at fifty, then I can sell it like it's fifty dollar oil. And so now think about that. That's all that also causes the problem. Because if you if you're not hedged out, and then um, Pioneer, who's one of the you know a larger producer, right? They're still drilling like it's fifty. Well, you're having to stop because you can't afford to drill anymore. Well, now you have these interests that that aren't aligned. And also, what what else is interesting about this article is if you look at the hedges that are being laid for 2018, as you mentioned, Josh, they're already ahead of the pace of what normally you would see this time of year. So we're starting to see vision lines, if you will, kind of being drawn and companies are saying, okay, um, I'm not willing to risk anything. And I think really the fact that we're seeing so many hedges probably shows you that companies are not really going to be risk-averse. They're going to play it safe. And to hedge at fifty through this year and to hedge out early in next year shows that you know what if you're looking for seventy seventy eighty dollar oil the big boys at least they're not seeing that happen.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, one of our other articles uh, we're just gonna kind of pull them in together. It's uh, a company called uh, QEP. Is paying seven hundred and thirty-two million for some uh, some acreage out in the Midland Basin, and it just um, it appears that there's not much margin there. So uh, it's kind of it seems to be uh, kind of a strange deal that that's happening out there right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. So they're they're paying like I think it was fifty-one thousand dollars an acre, and, and kind of the norm we've talked about this on the show before. I think it was like forty forty-one, which you see a lot of these deals go for. And so you kind of sit back and you go, man, I, um, it's it's kind of that question we talked about sometimes, you know, they got a lot of money, they got a lot of debt. Well, they got some money obviously right here, but it's, it's, you know, w- what are they seeing that we don't see? Because if you sit back and you look at it, you go, ah, it doesn't look like the margins there to make money, especially if you're, if, if you're thinking that oil is going to peak out at 50, 51, 52, which is, um, you know, I think we talked about last week, the EIA, that's what they're saying, 52 for next year, 51 for this year, it's kind of your average. Um, But there's no guarantee, but average just means that, Josh. It's just an average. It doesn't mean it might have low swings down and swings high. So, average. And and according to the analysts, they're saying, okay, if these prices are right, and based upon what we know, uh, 50 is a pretty tight margin as it is. So, you read these articles and you go, okay. Uh, we got company A and B and C over here who are playing it safe. They're saying fifty is where we want to be. Yeah, that's that's a safe number for a percentage of our assets. We know we can get a certain return, and it's just a math. It's just a simple math for, formula, right? If we know that we can drill X amount of our reserves at fifty dollars oil, uh, then we can make you know so much profit, you know, regardless or or break even or whatever that number is compared to. Uh, what the rest of our reserves do if we can't drill them at all. Well, these guys, you know, I, I don't know, but it looks like they're kind of maybe betting on the price going a little bit high, um, at least according to these numbers, because you look at it and go, ah, I just don't, the math doesn't quite work here, but uh, it's going to be one of those stories where, you know, this time next year we're sitting down going, well, man, those guys were geniuses, or could it could be a deal where they uh, they, they thought, they, they saw something and they thought they could hit, the, they could, you know, take a gamble and hit it, and so they didn't work out. But this could be one of those situations a year from now, you're going to be sitting back going, Wow, they were they were really really on top of things, and we didn't know what we were talking about. Which you know, that's not uncommon. Or uh, yeah, well, I don't know what they saw because we don't we don't know what they see today. So we won't, definitely won't know what they see if they go out of business or get bought up a year from now.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, it seems like just an ultra aggressive move. Uh, I mean, it seems to be very risky in my opinion. Just looking at the numbers, it's, it's a steep price that they're paying for that acreage. Well, uh, the other story that's kind of revolving here is a story in the Eagleford. Uh, this article is saying that the Eagleford rebound needs forty-eight dollars uh, a barrel. So uh, it's interesting that these people are hedged out at fifty uh, prices. I believe right now are around forty-nine and half or somewhere right around mm-hmm. there. And the Eagleford. Uh, this article is saying they need to be at. Forty-eight uh, to, to to have this rebound. So we're it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out uh, with some of these companies that can't hedge that the way Pioneer has. Uh, just kind of interesting to see how it's going to play out and if if Eagleford uh, will be able to to rebound.
0: Yeah, and you know I think that this this is one of those things where you're looking at it going okay. Um, so we got to step back here and we got to say. You know, hedging at 50 and breakeven at 50 is not the same thing. And this article is talking about a kind of a even price, 48. That's a general term, so not all producers need to be at 48. It's just kind of a general statement saying that you know most producers would probably need something around 48 to make money. Um, and so, yeah, this is this is going to be it because um, if you just if you took the 48 and you said, well, 48 is a, is a hard number, um, well, that's that's it for them. And so they're going to be drilling hard at 48 and may even look at some uh, hedging out at some 48s. And so the it, this is this is really going to be interesting as we go through um, the end of the second half of the year to watch. And I hope next week, Josh, maybe the week after, we're going to be able to talk about some of these second quarter reports that have come out, earnings, earnings reports, because if you look at like what Anadarko said this week and some of these other companies said this week, and you start to kind of look at some of this news, you sit back and you go, okay, um, the end of 2017 might be quite exciting because I think you're going to see potentially um, a lot of interesting things happen and hopefully – uh, I think all of the, I think most of the second quarter reports, at least that I'm looking for, will be in by next Friday, hopefully in time to do show prep. But if not, definitely the week after, because you start looking at this, you look at the last article and what's kind of started this thing, the hedging out, and you start to kind of say, okay, you're starting to see all these patterns with these companies and what they're doing, what the indicators they're seeing, and what they're hoping to get accomplished. And so um, it's going to be interesting. And, of course, we'll have Serge John uh, here in a little bit, and we'll get to ask him what he thinks about this 48 number to see, get his opinion on it.
1: Yeah, uh, and also in this article, um, we'll have we'll have a link in the show notes. In the article, there's a report uh, that was done by the University of Texas at San Antonio. Uh, I took a a brief look at it. It's about seventy pages. It's got uh, several PhD researchers that are going over some of the job opportunities and just the the way the market has changed from 2014 up till the end of 2016. Uh, so if you want to take a look at that, it's very in depth, some interesting stuff in there. Uh, again, that'll be, that'll be in the show notes. Brian, we, uh, we have some news that we wanted to kind of give everybody a, I guess, a, a small update is, uh, we're working on a newsletter that's going to be going out. Not sure when we're working on it. Um, interesting stuff. Uh, we're going to have some interesting graphs, charts, and statistics that we're going to be adding in there. Um. Yeah,
0: you know, I think, Josh, one of the things is, um, you know, when I read these stories, for me, it's really about how do I create business opportunities. I mean, the news is nice. It's, it's good to read. It's, but it's really about how do I create business opportunities from this from the news. And if I hear that Anadarko is cutting its budget by three hundred million dollars, then I need to know. Well, what does that mean for me? Do I need to do I need to go after Anadarko? Do I need to leave Anadarko alone? What does that mean? And so, for 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 me in this show, what we're trying to do on some level is, is just kind of take what other people are reporting, but also commentate. What do we think it means when you look at these stories and you say, "Hey, uh, companies are hedging at 50 or Eagle Ford needs to break out, uh, be at forty. Forty-eight to break even. Um, this company's buying acreage that looks to be a little overpriced. What What does all that mean? Now, um, there's a ton of opinions, and so I don't. I don't think that me or you are trying to sit here and say we're the analysts as far as the market goes. But when you sit back and you look at it and you go, how do we create opportunity from the news? Because that's really, if you're listening to this show, you're probably listening to it and you're, and you're looking for opportunity. You're either looking for a job because you work for a company and you're saying, okay, uh, maybe I want to go somewhere else or I want to work here. I just want to know what's going on. So if I need to change jobs, I'm available. I, I, I know what's—I know who may, can, I can work for. Or you're like me and you run a small business. And you say, okay. Um, I need to figure out how to direct my sales staff. Maybe you are in sales. How do I? Who do I go call? And so that's the purpose of this newsletter: is to kind of give you information, kind of be your research assistant. Now we have a, another thing that we're going we're going to piggyback off that. We'll talk about that here in a few weeks as well. Um, but really, going to try to bring just the condensed news um, five times a week. I think we're going for Josh uh, condensed information people um so they know what what to be looking for and where to devote their their time because as you know josh when you're in sales when you're in marketing when you're running a company you don't have time to sit around like you do at the beach all day and just read news stories and so some of us got to (laughs) work some of us got to put in the time and some of us got to actually read and figure out what's going on and so hope to bring it uh, be an asset to our listeners in that way as well
1: yeah yeah i'm excited Uh, i'm excited I, i think it'll be very useful uh efficient use of time as well we'll do the research for you and uh Get it to you in a usable format that hopefully can help you land some more business
0: yeah or or, or know which companies not to go after you know that's because yeah. that's 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 half the battle really is yeah you know you you go after a company and you say okay uh you, you read a headline and you're like oh, okay this looks like someone to go after and so i uh, just hope to give you some information that is helpful for you and your business and if you just like the news well there's obviously news is what it's all based around
1: so well, uh, we've we've uh, added in a new segment to the show uh, recently. We are about to take a question of the day. Um, it's going to be around hedges. So, what what was the question, Ron?
0: Yeah, question of the day, Josh. Are you surprised that companies are already hedging out at $50 a barrel for 2018? Uh, let me know. Ryan at globalenergymedia.com. That's Ryan at globalenergymedia.com. And we'll read your answer on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Um, as we as we go through the rest of this year, we're going to see some more news like this. So what is your take? Uh, are you a little surprised that companies are already jumping on the $50 bandwagon next year and saying, Hey, you know what? We're going to lock in our price now.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I look forward to hearing your answers. And uh, also, don't forget, if uh, you listen to the show, if uh, you've been enjoying it, we really appreciate you to go to iTunes and uh, give us a review. Rate us. Uh, we really appreciate it. it helps a lot. Uh, we have a special guest today, David Blackman. Well, David, uh, we got an interesting story with the NGI report earlier this week uh, talking about the industry's having trouble attracting millennials. Uh, you got any more information for us on that?
2: Well, I don't. Other than what's in the story there, it's based on a poll that was recently taken among millennials, uh, which are people, I guess, aged, what, what, 18 to 35 is the millennial generation mm-hmm. at this point. Um, and it cited something like 14 percent of them uh, told this, this pollster that they simply would never consider going to work in the oil and gas industry. Uh, I think the quote was they consider it difficult, dirty and not socially responsible. And I looked at that, and I thought, you know, man, I remember seeing polls like that in the 80s and the 90s and the first decade of this century, which I'm not sure how to refer to it. Um, And, you know, I'm not really sure that millennials are actually unique in that. I I, I think if you'd have taken a similar poll of college students in the 80s and 90s and 00s, um, you'd have probably had a pretty similar result. Uh, The the oil and gas industry has always had a negative image among young people and uh, people coming out of college, at least a certain number of them, and has always had a difficult time, uh, a more difficult time than some other industries in, in recruiting new college graduates. So, I, frankly, I, I wanted to talk about that just because uh, the story as was written made it sound like this was some kind of surprise, and I, I quite honestly don't think it's any surprise at all.
0: One of the things I think, David, on that is when you look at marketing and advertising, if you think about oil and gas workers, what do you think about usually an offshore-type rig situation where you're working on a rig or you're out in West Texas and you're getting your hands dirty and you're covered in oil, and that's just kind of the the first thought that comes to your mind. And there's nothing wrong with that. Our listeners do that, and and we're, we're thankful for that. But that's not all that the oil and gas industry offers. And I I think one of the things when you're looking at marketing marketing to any industry, you're saying, okay, this is our industry, is you need to show um, a wide variety of jobs and opportunities. And and if you talk about the oil and gas industry, as you know, that's so vague that there's all kinds of peripheral industries that are tied up in oil and gas that you wouldn't necessarily consider... um, Compared to what the offshore analogy was, you wouldn't go, "Oh, well, okay, that's that's really tied up in oil and gas." And so, I think for oil and gas standpoint, if you went about marketing um, and how to bring in new talent, it's really showing that there's a lot of jobs other than just getting your hands dirty.
2: Oh yeah, and and you know th- those jobs you're talking about that people typically see on television, those jobs are difficult and dirty. Yeah, that's hard work, man. I've done that work when I was young. You know, it's it's not fun. Uh, but uh, as you say, I mean, the oil and gas industry employs pretty much every discipline i mean uh scientists from you know in the geophysics world uh engineers accountants lawyers human resource professionals people with psychology degrees and history degrees work in the oil and gas industry i mean this is the image of the industry unfortunately uh, that has been you know uh, promoted in pop culture and the news media uh, is different than the industry actually is but you know that's a and and you do see companies like Shell and, and Chevron, Conoco Phillips and others Exxon, uh, spending millions and millions of dollars on TV ad campaigns and the people you see on those campaigns are, are not people working on an oil rig they're they're they're, you know senior executives and and people in their HR department I, there was one I think a BP ad that featured one of their people in their human resources group and but. You know the the advertising campaigns have limited utility because uh, all the noise in pop culture is this is a dirty and difficult industry. So, a certain number of young people are going to take that message to heart and never want to work in this
0: industry. Well, and, and they've got a little bit of a in a ba- backlog to catch up to. You know, the, anytime there's perception and you're trying to change it, it just, ta- it just takes time.
2: Yes, exactly, exactly, and lots and lots of money.
1: Well, the uh, we have an article here, um, David. Uh, energy oil prices. Uh, they- Rise to an eight week high following the unexpected U.S. inventory draw. Uh, it's a pretty interesting article there. Um, just taking a look at it, the, the author goes talks about some of the some of the stats that are coming out. Uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, and 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 that article is at allprice dot com, and the headline says this was an unexpected U.S. inventory draw. Uh, I'm not sure why it was unexpected. We've had uh, U.S. inventory draws in all but one of the last, I think it's seven weeks now. Um, And it shouldn't have surprised anybody because in May, the Saudis announced they were going to dramatically reduce exports to the United States in order to try to create exactly that sequence of big inventory draws. Because, um, you know, the Saudis took a look at what was really influencing the low oil price at that time, which... You know, in May the oil price was sitting around forty-four dollars a barrel WTI, and uh, you know they decided you know if we could if we can reduce exports to the United States and get those inventories down in the U.S. That's what's really depressing the price. It's it's a psychological factor uh, among energy investors and traders, and they've been very successful. They they cut exports and and produced the inventory draws that uh, they wanted to produce. Well and. Uh, so,
0: go ahead. I was just say, you know, one of the things I've kind of wondered, if you look at these draws and you look at the prices starting to tick back up now, to, I think it's at uh, forty nine and some change this morning. Yeah. Um, you know, so when we're talking earlier before you came on, that you know some producers are hedging out at fifty for the rest of this year and then early to twenty eighteen. Um, mm-hmm. So is that going to maybe work against the Saudis ultimately? Because when they start, when the, when the inventory starts to draw, are, are these producers going to get a little bit more excited and think that the prices are going to spike up and then ramp out, uh, ramp up production? No,
2: uh, and I'll tell you why. I'll uh, tell you why I've written a lot about that lately at Forbes, uh, two different pieces I've written at Forbes. Um, it, it's because, you know, the, the companies that are drilling the great majority of shale wells in the United States are mid-sized to large independent producers that are corporations. And, and all these corporations have specific six-month budgeting cycles. They, they set a, a 12-month budget at the first of the year. And and when they did that this year, the oil price was at WTI was at fifty-three, fifty-four dollars. And then you get to April and May, they look take a look at the last six months of the year and think, well, where's the price now? Where are costs do we need to adjust? And they all sat there in April and May with the price around 44, 45 and costs rapidly rising and thought, oh gee, you know, we kind of need to cut back on this capital spend the second half of the year. And now you're seeing articles this week, you know, finally talking about the fact that all these companies have reduced their budgets for the last six months of the year. And so even if the price jumps up above 50, which I think it's probably going to do here over the uh, I mean, hell, maybe today before the day's over, but right. certainly in the next month, uh, these companies are not then going to go back. You know, these management teams, the budgets have to be improved by the board of direct- approved by the board of directors, and they're not going to go back in and tell their board, hey, you know what? gee whiz the price got back above 50 dollars last week i think we need to spend another x million dollars drilling wells they're not going to do that uh, virtually all of them aren't going to do that they're going to follow these budgets for the rest of this year and so i think that what that probably means is that we're going to see a leveling off of the rig count for the rest of this year it's not going to go down dramatically but it's just not going to continue to rise like it did the first six months of the year and because these companies have probably all cut back their budgets 10% or so from what they had envisioned. And, and that's going to mean we're going to be at a steady red count the rest of the year, virtually regardless of what the price does.
0: And, and you mentioned leveling off. Obviously, as everyone knows, or if you don't know, let me just tell you, uh, David Blackman's a Forbes contributor. And he has a piece this week, a good piece, talking about the great leveling off uh, for U.S. Shell. So kind of give us your thought process. What made you want to write the article and what all can the readers expect to find in it?
2: Well, it's, it's a follow-up on a piece I wrote in mid-June uh, predicting just exactly what I said, that that these companies were going to lower their budgets for the second half of the year and the rig count's going to level off. And now that's exactly what we're seeing. And so so what's going to happen the rest of this year is, is is just like I said a minute ago, it's going to be just kind of a steady level of drilling. The, the rig count last Friday was at 9.50. 50, i think it, it actually went down by two rigs uh we'll see what the rig count is on the 28th of july uh when we're recording this it had not been released yet right it might go up a little bit it might go down a little bit but i just think we're probably going to see a rig count in this mid 900 range uh the rest of the year and it pretty doesn't pretty much doesn't matter uh what the saudis do or what the price does just because of these budgeting processes, all of these corporations go through, and the reluctance of management teams—you know—they're going to be very reluctant to go back into their board of directors and ask for any sort of a significant increase in that budget based on a five-dollar rise in the oil price, because everybody knows these fluctuations in the oil price can be very temporary, as as we have seen over the last three years, um, and. You know just because it jumps up above 50 one week doesn't mean it's going to stay there for any long period of time and i tell you the other thing we're seeing guys we're seeing uh libya this week and, and iran both announced they're significantly ramping up production well above the quotas they'd agreed to in that opec deal and so the saudis and united arab emirates and kuwait all came in behind them and said okay y'all are going to ramp up. We're going to cut back more. The Saudis announced they're going to cut their exports back to 6.6 million barrels of oil a day. Two years ago, the Saudis were exporting almost 10 million barrels of oil a day. And we still haven't balanced the market with the Saudis cutting almost 3 million barrels of oil a day out of their own exports. So, um, this is a very persistent glut we have on the global market. And you know, just because uh, it, uh, supply and demand balance one day doesn't mean the Saudis aren't going to open the spigot a week later and, and cause another price decline. So it's just such an uncertain situation. You know, these companies are going to be real reluctant to go try to change their budgets in the middle of this second six months of the year.
0: Right. Well, I guess the kind of where I was looking at from earlier is that you're seeing that a lot of, co- uh, I say a lot, there's there's some of the bigger companies like Pioneer are hedging out at 50 um, for yep. the rest of this year and early next year. And if if they're if, if you see a lot of, and even it seems that the pace of hedges for 2018 is, a, is, a, is ahead of schedule. And so I, I was just wondering, you know, if you see a lot of companies that are hedging out at 50, um, even if the price trips down to, you know, 20 or 30, whatever percent of their, their budget is allocated to hedges then they're going to keep drilling like it's 50. And so that, that's, that's got to be factored in there somewhere. How big of a factor is, I don't really have a, a Oh, it's
2: yet, right? It's a huge factor. And it, and it just supports, uh, you know, my contention that that we're just going to see a steady uh, rate of drilling the second half of the year because they right. have hedged. Most of these companies have hedged their oil through at least the first couple of months of next year. And, and they do that. You know, the reason companies hedge is to create predictability in their revenue stream, oh, yeah. their cash flow. And so now they've got a predictable cash flow and they can just follow through on those budgets for the rest of this year and drill the wells they wanted to drill in the first place and it's going to be fine but then you're going to get to the first of the year you know and depending on where the price is at the first of the year they're going to look at that and you know decide whether or not to significantly increase or decrease those capital budgets and so we we need to hope (laughs) we need to hope that the price stays at least around this 50 dollar level at the first of the year
0: Right. Well, Josh, unless you got anything for uh, David, I guess we're going to let him get off here. But David, I know a few weeks ago we talked about doing a podcast and you kind of came back and said, I got some contractual obligations, but I think you are going to be able to do one. um, And so if you can tell the audience where they may find you and what that's going to be about, we'd love to give you a second to plug that.
2: Well, we haven't gotten it started yet. Um, uh, We've, we've of course, been delayed for a week or two, but uh Uh, It's through Shale Magazine at at www.shalemag.com. And hopefully we'll have a new one uh, posted up here in the next couple of weeks uh, for people to take a look for. I will certainly be posting it uh, on my Facebook page and at my own website, which is uh, dbdailyupdate.com. And uh, at that website, I link to everything I write uh, at the various places where I do write. And uh, also do a, pol- a daily political update every morning, um, which is always fun. So dbdailyupdate.com.
1: Yeah, we we'll appreciate you coming on, David. Nice having Hey, you. thank you, guys. Thanks, David.
0: Look to see you again soon. All right. Bye. Thanks again to David for coming on. Uh, Always good to talk to him. And uh, just a shame we couldn't get that podcast worked out, but best of luck to him and what he has going on. And look forward to having him on again. And speaking of guests, we have on Sergio Chapa from the San Antonio Business Journal. All right,
1: Sergio. Just jumping into the first three uh, Texas energy companies that have benefited from uh, Trump's first six months. Uh, Interesting article, man. Just wanted to get some uh, recap from you.
3: Sure, you bet. It's good to be back, Uh a road trip to Yellowstone, but I kept listening to you guys on the road. It's always nice to stay in touch with podcasts podcast and stay up to date. Um, so like a couple of weeks ago, Donald Trump released like like his, uh, a giant, giant list. I'd say it was like a four-page list or so of his uh, touting his ac- for his accomplishments first six months in office, right? And you know, one of the subsets on that almost took a whole page on its own was energy. You know, he's was, he was he touting his his accomplishments in the energy sector. And, and you know, uh, right off the bat, he was talking about the uh, the Keystone Pipeline, approving the Keystone Pipeline. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, out of that list of energy companies, several from Texas benefited from those decisions. So the Keystone, of course, you know, that, that's TransCanada is the pipeline company benefiting from that. But here locally in Texas, it really benefits Valero Energy And uh, then of course they're a San Antonio based refining company and they've got refineries all along the Gulf coast. And uh, a lot of those refineries are able, I'd say about five or so or about are able to process. Oh, I'm sorry. Six of those refineries are able to, to process that, you know, that, that, that tar sands oil, that Canadian oil as a feedstock. So this is something that directly impacts them just, you know, right off the six months, right off the bat. And then, then of course, you know, there was uh, another permit approval from the Trump administration for the Lake Charles LNG, um, you know, uh, uh, export terminal in, in Louisiana and uh, that benefits energy transfer partners in Dallas. Um, but the ETP also benefited from Trump approving the Dakota access pipeline. Everybody remembers that early on. And he did that within his first two weeks in office. And, and so like that decision to, and complete that last segment of the pipeline, you know, um, you know, directly benefited that company. And then, and, you know, and then just like about, I'd say about two, three weeks ago, Trump held a big press conference with, you know, the uh, energy secretary Perry. And in that press conference, you know, they, they, they made several announcements, but one of them was a new, you know, refined products pipeline to Mexico. And that was right here in South Texas. And that's a pipeline, the, the new Border Ghost Pipeline being built by New Star Energy, uh, which is headquartered here in San Antonio. So that's, that's that makes the third. It would be Valero, ETP, and New Star. So far, just have benefited from these uh, decisions just the first six months of
0: office. You know, one thing that caught my eye, Sergio, was um, talking about building the pipeline in Mexico. Um, you know, with all the Trump talk about Mexico and people worrying that there may be some tension there, it seems that even though that, well, whatever you want to think about the wall and his his rhetoric towards Mexico, that there are deals that are happening. And is he kind of enabling them? Or is it maybe he's doing other things that are uh, are allowing these projects to go indirectly, if that makes sense?
3: No, I mean, it's, it's clearly that, that, you know, the, in the energy sector, you know, business and trade with mexico is increasing no one can deny that you know what 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 role that'll how all that'll play out with like these you know border wall talks and everything and nafta renegotiations all that remains to be seen um but yeah i i I think that once you start talking about these these other issues you know energy's going to come back up and and you know and and mexico is is a trading partner you know I think it'll have to you know come into the conversation at some point or another so that's something we're kind of kind of watching closely right now
1: yeah you mentioned uh, some of these companies that are benefiting from it I saw an article that came out um, kind of off topic but it was uh, they only have one member right now and they're trying to they Trump uh, he appointed two others but they have to vote on it and uh, right now they have a couple of pipelines that they can't get get started because they need these votes uh, I, I forget where they were located uh, a couple of them were in Texas but they're trying to Get some infrastructure uh, together so that these companies can start transporting uh, some of the oil that's going on in the Permian. So it's interesting. Uh, Trump's trying to get things there in place, but there's been some, a couple of holdups.
3: At, at the FERC, yeah, you're right, Josh. Uh, no, and as a matter of fact, earlier this week, Texas Railroad Commissioner Wayne Christian sent out a fiery statement about that very topic, about how they need to approve those two commissioners, because it just, it's more than just pipelines for refined products there are three LNG export terminals of whose applications are pending for the port of Brownsville. And, you know, that LNG is going to go everywhere. It's going to go to, it's going to go to Europe. It's going to go to Asia. It's going to go to Latin America. So, you know, that's another thing that's up in the air, you know, uh, while we're waiting for approval of these commissioners.
1: Well, we have uh, another article here, Sergio, the Carnes County dethroned as the top crude oil producer in Texas. Um, and, and yeah, Ser
0: Josh I do not Sergio, was taking a little bit of heat online yesterday about uh, about this article.
3: <laughs> so, uh,
0: no, I quite enjoyed that. So uh, one of our listeners was talking about uh, no love for I think it was Webb County and uh, because
3: no love for Webb County. Well, I mean, <laughs> they're not a top producer of crude oil. They're a top producer of gas. I mean, and they're number one in natural gas, and no one even comes close to them. you you could add the the following two or three counties and it won't even come close to Webb County. <laughs> You know.
0: So what's the deal with with Carnes? It's one of those things where, you know, when you think of the top producers in oil, you don't think Carnes County, but for so long it, it really has been.
3: Right. No, no. I mean we we call this kind of Game of Thrones because they were they were the, the you know, they were on the throne for years as the top producer. Um, you know, Carnes County is, is in about an hour south of San Antonio and it's kind of a hilly area you know, unremarkable landscapes, but it's what's, it's what's underground that's really remarkable. I mean, they've got two tight shale formations, the Eagleford and the Austin Chalk, and, and both of them are really sweet spots for, um, for both formations for, for liquids, you know, for crude oil and, uh, and condensates. So, uh, you know, a number of companies have set up shop there and, and, you know, and, and I'd, I'd say over for the past, Four or five years, Carnes County was ranked, ever since the shale revolution happened, anyways. Carnes County was ranked as the top crude oil producing uh, county in Texas, you know, and and it remained so just until uh, uh, about last year, uh, you know, uh, during the downturn when the Permian Basin started to ramp up. Now, those, you know, as much as people talk about about those, you know, those, 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 uh, you know, Wolfbone and, and Phantom and you know, all those uh, geological layers, you know, they're just not, they're just not as productive as, as Eagle Ford is in Carnes County. So one well in Carnes County is worth like two in the Permian almost, it seems like sometimes, you know, and, um, but then, you know, just by sheer volume of wells, and then you add up their production cumulatively, they were fine. Midland County was finally able to uh, unseat, um, Carnes County last year, I'd say about like October, November, and you know they've been battling it out ever since. And finally, uh, you know, with the latest figures that were released uh, for May, um, we know that, that you know Midland County is moving forward, and they 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 did so decisively. It wasn't like you know within a hundred thousand barrel range. It was it was by like half a million, you know, was something significant. Right. So we 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 think that you know going forward. The Midland's going to be the top oil producer in Texas. And Carnes Canyon will just kind of have to take a back seat for now, you know, until oil prices go back up.
0: Real, real quick, mm. a follow-up on that. Um, you know, if, if oil prices do go back up, um, what what are kind of the the short-term prospects for a lot of companies that move in there and drill? Or is it kind of – because one of the things we talked about earlier before you got on is it seems that um, – Companies right now are talking about the Eagleford at forty eight, and but you're seeing bigger companies that are hedging out at fifty. And so, um, if prices were to get say on the plus side of fifty for a little while, would you see maybe a, a, of a kind of a, a quick rush to go down to Carnes County again?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, well, it happened the last time that oil, you know, was above fifty. I mean, we saw a spike in drilling permits in Carnes County. I mean, that that would be out of the whole Eagleford you know, formation, and it spans like twenty six counties in Texas. I mean, for crude oil, that is the sweet spot, you know, and we see kind of the opposite thing. in, you know, LaSalle, Emmett, Webb County, where that's the dry gas window and, you know, companies, you know, drilling for natural gas go there, you know. So, uh, you know, even though lately, like, you know, drilling permits for oil wells has taken a dip, Um, you know, drilling permits for gas wells seem to be doing fine on the other end of the shale.
1: Well, uh, moving to the the other article we have here about Raven Petroleum, they have a new refinery they're doing, um, giving us a first peek at some of their designs. Sergio,
3: yeah, right. Uh, yeah, so Raven Petroleum, they're they're a company based out of the Woodlands, just outside Houston, and and what what they're 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 proposing to build a refinery in Hebronville, uh, you know, between Hebronville and Laredo, and um, it'll be about fifty five thousand. Barrel a day refinery. They're, they want what they want to make is they want to turn, turn, take light sweep crude from Eagle Ford, process it and turn it into gasoline, diesel, uh, you know, LPGs and everything, and ship it by rail, you know, to Mexico. And, you know, there are eventually plans to build a pipeline in Mexico. Um, it, it, it is important to note that the company hasn't filed their TCEQ permit. They did buy the land. they've they've done all types of other, you know, like pre, you know, pre-engineering and, and all types of other actions. Um, But, um, but they held a public meeting uh, last week on July 20th, they held their first public meeting, giving, you know, the, the, the residents of Hebronville, Hebronville and surrounding communities, a peek at the engineering plans. And, you know, and if, and if, you know, if approved, it's, it's going to be a, you know, pretty impressive facility. It's going to be powered by, geothermal power um mm-hmm. that's like a 10 to 12 megawatt power plant drawing on the the heated the heated water underground these are the same sedimentary you know geological layers that where they're drilling for oil but there's also that that hot water that can be used to produce uh you know electricity and then also be used for, for as a source of fresh water for the refinery itself so you know that was that was that was an interesting presentation and then um there's like a number of safety features to remove sulfur from the, from the Eagle Ford crude oil. Um, you know, and, and crude oil from the Eagleford varies greatly from spot to spot. So they're going to have to be kind of flexible on, on how they, uh, how they're able to process all that oil. Um, they talked about all types of other things like, you know, like an overpass for the railroad tracks, uh, you know, a, a medical emergency station, you know, uh, racks to, to, to do, uh, um, to, to, for trucks to deliver propane. And then also they talked about a building, a rail port, and they showed plans for it, like the, you know, how it's going to be a loop where where they can have both inbound and outbound trains coming in at the same time, you know, to, to bring in the feedstock and then to take out the finished product. And there's going to be something like, was it like almost like 1.5 million barrels of storage there for, for, uh, Uh, crude oil feedstock, and then another 1.8 million barrels worth of storage for refined products. That's like more than 3 million barrels worth there in that one single facility.
0: You know, Sergio, sometimes you'll see presentations and talks of stuff about uh, building um, plants and facilities, and then you'll, you'll, you'll sit back two or three years later and you go, whatever happened to that thing? And that's because sometimes they just don't get approved. What kind of odds are you thinking that, that, that Raven Petroleum has of actually getting, going through the permitting process and getting this plan approved?
3: Well, I mean, that's a million-dollar question that everybody wants to know right now. It, 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 it is important well, to note that it does face opposition from a group of landowners in the neighboring town of Bruni who are, you know, downwind from the refinery, and they're concerned about the about the pollution. Um, so, you know, Raven, with their geothermal um, power plant, one of the features of the plant is it's also going to be able to take the emissions from the power plant and just shoot them underground, inject them, that carbon sequestration, and um, what do you call it? So that, that, that CO2 will go underground and then be turned around and use this super critical CO2 in the power generation process, you know, once it's, once it's looped back up and, um, and, and, you know, it's like, as far as it goes, I mean, the real, the real test, Brian, is going to be, you know, you know, if and when they file their permit with the TCEQ, that's what right. the real thing that everybody's waiting for. And, and so what I was told there at the meeting is that the one thing holding that up is a feedstock contract. So, so currently Raven is in negotiations with six companies to secure feedstock from the Eagle Ford shale. And, you know, and and there are a number of of pipelines and and oil wells in the neighborhood, you know, it wouldn't be unfeasible. It's just, you know, a matter of coming to agreement on a terms for the, for the feedstock, you know, and once they know their feedstock, they can determine, you know, what type of crude oil they're getting, what API it'll be, how much sulfur it's going to have in it. Then they can do like the engineering and, uh, you know, finish, finish their design work and then submit it to the TCEQ. So they, the current estimate is once that feedstocks contract is secured, it'll take like at least another six months before they can, um, before they can uh, file their permit. And that's when the real battle will begin. You know, before the TCQ with comments and questions and reviews, you know, that process could take a year. So, I don't know. We'll, we'll, see. we'll, we'll see what happens when, if they make an announcement on the feedstock first, and then two, once they uh, submit, if and when they submit their application.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I know we're running short on time here, but we want to give our listeners value as always. Uh, I read your drilling permit roundup this week about Lewis Energy. Kind of give us a quick breakdown before we let you get out of here.
3: So, okay, that's, that's exactly what I was talking about earlier now. We talked about, like, you know, how the Carnes County uh, got got dethroned as the uh, top producer of crude. Well, conversely, you know, on the other side of the Eiffel Ford Shale, um, uh, Webb County is the top producer of natural gas. And there's a reason because, you know, geologically speaking, like, it's, it's, a, it's a dry gas window. So, you know, I mean, it's no secret that oil dipped down, like, you know, fell like $9 per barrel over the past couple of weeks. And, you know, it's gone up over this week, but, but it was really in a slump. And, and so like a number of permits, you saw a decrease, a sharp decrease in permits, but what, but the, when you look at the permits that were filed, you know, one thing I started to notice is that a lot of them were just for gas wells, pure gas wells. And they were in like Webb County and they were in Dimmit County and LaSalle County. And, you know, the company leading the pack on that is uh lewis energy here in san antonio and and you know they're they're there's something of a top driller for natural gas and they've really carved out a a niche down there in webb county where where they're they're filing a healthy healthy number of permits so i think i think you can see that continue um you know oil and gas prices oil and natural gas prices were divorced a long time ago they don't move in tandem anymore you know one goes right you know now it's now nowadays one goes down the other one might go up you know i mean Right, And that's pretty much the case with natural gas right now. Natural gas prices are stable, so as one would expect, if you're drilling a gas well, you're unaffected by these problems in the in the crude oil market. And that's what we're seeing right now in the western end of the Eagleport Shell. We're seeing you know, more gas wells being drilled. So,
0: well, I tell you what... And you know, Lewis
3: Energy is, is, is the leader.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm a subscriber to the San Antonio Business Journal, and one of the reasons why is I get to find out information like this on a weekly basis. The drilling permit roundup comes out on Mondays, and you can read it there. And again, folks, if you're in Oil and gas, and you're trying to figure out where to work, who to work for, what companies to chase, who's moving and doing deals. Sergio Chapa is obviously the man, which reminds me, Sergio, before we go, Cabot, Oil, and Gas, what do you have for us on them?
3: Cabot, Cabot, Cabot. Well, you know, I'd love to give an update on that, but I think we're just all out of time on that one, (laughs) right? Okay. (laughs) Went into a staff meeting. I apologize. My apologies to Cabot.
0: All right. We'll get Cabot next week. Thanks, Sergio. All
3: right. Sounds good, man.
0: Thanks again to David Blackman and Sergio Chapa for joining us this week. Really enjoyed the discussion. And this is Ryan Ray reminding you, until next time, keep climbing.